The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Winona Hodder. She is the executive director of Food and Water Watch, and she is the author of a great new book called Foodopoly, The Battle Over the Future of Food and Farming in America. Welcome, Winona. I'm so pleased to be here today. Well, your book is truly an important book for our time, and I want to go through it. I want to pull out pieces that I think are salient, and I want you to have the opportunity to do that as well. But I guess I should have also introduced you as an organic farmer. And I think it's very interesting that you have a wonderful history in farming. You write in your introduction that in 1963, your dad bought a ramshackle farm. Your husband is now running the farm. You feed over 500 families through a CSA. But then you've also got this political astuteness of knowing exactly what's been going on with regard to our food system and how that has influenced consumer choice. How did you get interested in food policy? Well, you know, I grew up in the end of the 1960s and early 1970s. I did grow up on this farm, and my my dad had been uh, an early subscriber of organic gardening, and I kind of grew up knowing that there was a problem with pesticides. And my dad never made a lot of money from that farm. And, you know, at that time, the land wasn't worth very much. I mean, he picked it up for a song. But I'm an only child, and I ended up inheriting that farm, which most people don't have the uh, uh, the great opportunity to have a farm fall on their lap. But, you know, as a, a young adult, I'll have to tell you, I couldn't wait to get off the farm and out on my own. And I really became politicized during this period. I uh, moved, actually, into a, a an area where there was a lot of organic growing going on. And after I graduated from college, I became uh, a political advocate, and I've always done advocacy work. And during the period that I worked for the Ralph Nader organization, Public Citizen, it really struck me that food and water issues were not only the critical issues of our time, but that um, they were a way to bring people to politics and that what really we need to do is to reclaim our democracy and get people re-involved in our our country and in civic affairs. And that's uh, why I founded Food and Water Watch, and it's why I wrote Foodopoly, really, because I see so many structural issues that need to be addressed, and we really need the good food movement to take the next step and get involved in the political system, not just voting with their fork. I'm so glad you said that because so often I hear the onus placed on consumers. If this food system is going to change, it's got to be driven by consumers. And isn't it great that we've got many more farmers markets today, many more CSAs. We've got a stronger local food movement growing. But you say that's not enough. 
And you say, if we don't confront and change the consolidation and corporate control of our food system, only a very small percentage of people will benefit from the good food movement. We can't shop our way out of this mess. What do you mean? Well, you know, you look at the good food movement, and it's wonderful. I mean, I see people coming out to our farm. They want to teach their children where food comes from. And direct sales work very well for some farmers who live near our metropolitan area. But if you look at our post-industrial society and all of the dysfunctional food that people are eating and all of the uh, political problems with how our food is produced and what the ecological and health effects are, we're going to need to really reshape the food system. Today, we have 20 large food processing companies that control most of the brands in the grocery store, Uh, the top five being PepsiCo, Nestle, Kraft, Tyson and the giant meat company JBS that owns brands like Pilgrim's Pride and Swift. And these 20 large food companies have worked with food scientists to come up with a way to basically addict people to food using fat, sugar, and salt. And especially children uh, who see on average of just under 4,000 ads uh, for junk food a year on television. And they figured out that children at the age of two have brand identification and that they can really reach the family because children are a large influence over what a family eats. And so these children are really uh, advertised to, and when they go into the grocery store, they pull on their parents' clothing, begging for, you know, the junk food cereal that's placed at eye level. And this is creating an enormous health problem. And then we have all of the ecological problems from uh, the pesticides and the herbicides. And rather than addressing these issues, the way that the consolidation is making them uh, worse and compounding them is that we've allowed these companies to become so large that they have a disproportionate amount of political power. Mm -hmm. And I just want to let our listeners know that I often talk about this illusion of choice. You know, you go into the supermarket and it seems like there are so many choices and brands. And in part two of your book, Consolidating Every Link of the Food Chain, you have indeed the top 20 U.S. food companies and their brands. And I think people might be surprised to see just how many brands that we might have thought were individual companies really owned by much larger corporations. And then you have a great quote from Grover Cleveland, December 3rd, 1888. He says, Corporations, which should be carefully restrained creatures of the law and the servants of the people, are fast becoming the people's masters. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And, you know, I think it's pretty ironic that we have an economic system that's supposed to be based on competition. But since the 1980s, when under the Reagan administration, our antitrust laws were eviscerated, we basically have had all public policy focused on allowing companies to consolidate and these industries to become very concentrated. So today in the food industry, we have this 
small cabal of companies that stand between farmers. And really, when you look at how many full-time farmers we have, it's under a million. And these companies stand uh, between these farmers and uh, more than 300 million consumers. And so when somebody goes in the grocery store, it does look like there's a lot of diversity, even though most of these brands are controlled by just 20 food processors. But even more dramatic is that we now have only four grocery chains that control an enormous amount of the grocery industry. Overall, about 50%, but in many, many markets, 70 to 90%. And sometimes it's only one of these chains that dominates uh, the market. And I'm talking about Walmart, the Kroger brands, uh, Costco, and Target. And these large chains with Walmart at the top have really caused consolidation all the way down the food chain. And they also suck the profit all the way up the food chain into their coffers. So today, Walmart is the uh, recipient of one out of three grocery dollars. And its heirs have as much wealth as the bottom 40% of Americans. And I think that is a pretty good analysis of what's gone wrong with our democracy and our food system. Absolutely, Winona. And you know, another thing that outrages me, especially with a lot of these big box stores, Walmart certainly being a great example, is that the employees are not paid a living wage in many cases. In many cases, they're part-time employees. They may not have access to health care. And so not only are American consumers picking up the tab for environmental costs, but we're also picking up the costs for inadequate wages. That's exactly right. And, you know, I don't think most people realize the effect that Walmart has had on the food system over the really the last 15 years when it got into groceries. And some very well-meaning food activists have suggested that Walmart could play a role in re-regionalizing the food system. But, you know, we have to look at how they do business, and they continually put pressure on their suppliers to cut costs. And their success is a result of some very specific ways that they do business. They have a logistics and distribution model that's a lot different from most companies, and it is all about sucking this uh, profit out of the supply chain. For instance, its logistical operations are run through forcing their suppliers to adopt their data sharing programs, all of their logistics. Uh, suppliers have to manage their own inventory, even on store shelves. They have to purchase these radio frequency tag systems so that for every $5 billion of business, a supplier like, say, PepsiCo uh, does with Walmart, they spend $33 uh, million a year uh, for these uh, radio uh, frequency tags that allow their products to be tracked. And contracts with Walmart are non-negotiable. If a supplier wants to do business with the world's largest retailer, it has to accept Walmart's terms. And I think what's most dramatic, especially if you think about fruits and vegetables, is that Walmart demands volume because it sells so much of every food. I mean, they buy about a billion, that's with a B, pounds of beef every year. They don't want to deal with a bunch of large or medium-sized meat packers. They want to deal with 
extra large giant meat packers like Tyson and like this Brazilian company, JBS. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I looked at in writing Foodopoly is the effect on fruits and vegetables. And it's had a dramatic effect in that uh, you look at the uh, Central Valley of California and this, the small or even medium or uh, some of the large growers are going out of business because only the largest uh, shipper packers have the capital to build the facilities that are necessary to do business with Walmart. And they also have to have an international operation and figure because of the trade rules and the trade liberalization that took place in the mid-1990s, more than half of all fruits and vegetables come from overseas. And countries like China are becoming a major exporters to the United States of processed fruits and vegetables. So that organic edamame that you buy at Whole Foods actually may have come from China. Hmm. It's so important that we discuss food and food systems and food policies, I think starting at a very young age. I mean, you were lucky in that you had that early farming experience at your father's knee. But then children go to school, they're exposed to a certain kind of food in the cafeteria. As you mentioned, you know, there might be one grocery store in their community, and that's the only choice they have. And then they start getting lessons about food. Maybe manufacturers are also writing the curriculum. Certainly when we get to, uh, to the university level, as you have here in your book under the junk food pushers section, A snapshot of corporate influence over university agricultural research, and this is in 2012. But I would also argue that there's corporate influence over not only university research, but also over curriculum as we filter down into even some of the lower grades. Oh, that's exactly right. In fact, when you look at who pays for research, well, it's the companies. In fact, they pay for their own studies. When, for instance, uh, Monsanto or uh, one of the biotech companies wants to have a a seed uh, approved for growing, they actually arrange and pay for the research. And then you just look at some of the major universities that have uh, relationships with uh, companies In fact, that's the way universities are basically running today. I mean, the University of California is a a good example. They take money and have programs associated with Monsanto, Chiquita, Dole, United Fresh, Earthbound Farm, Taylor Farm, Syngenta, Cisco. They have lots of the research is paid for by these companies. I mean, Iowa State, Texas A&M, University of Illinois, University of Florida, Purdue, I mean, the list goes on and on with the relationships, the corporate funding for university departments, schools, buildings, and scholarships. They direct the curriculum, and they pay for research, and that's why you know, when someone in the biotech industry stands up and says, well, there are 100 or 200 studies that show biotech products, genetic seed, genetically engineered seeds are safe, I want to ask, well, who did the research? Has anyone done any long-term studies? And, you know, the answer is no. We're not really looking at the long-term impacts that of the food that we eat that these technologies that are being created and used 
or at the unintended consequences. I so agree with you. If you're just joining us, listeners, we're speaking with Winona Hodder. She is the executive director of a terrific organization based in Washington, D.C. called Food and Water Watch. And she is the author of, I would say, probably one of the most important books to read this year, Foodopoly, The Battle Over the Future of Food and Farming in America. If you care about the food system, This is a wonderful one-stop place to learn about all the different influences. I think that the part of this book that looks at all of these influences makes it so obvious that we've really been eroding our ability to have an honest, genuine conversation and get an honest and genuine education without corporate influence. How are we going to get ourselves out of this mess? Well, you know, I think that as people in the food movement, we have to be a part of a larger strategy and that fixing the food system means that we have to fix our democracy because it's going to require really far-reaching legislative and regulatory changes to both create the policies that can result in a food system that has safe and affordable food for everyone and to restore our democracy. And, you know, I'm hopeful that people will come to the uh, food issues, get educated, and instead of just buying food for their family and voting with their fork, that they will get involved with politics, their local politics, their state politics, and that's ultimately how we're going to fix federal policy. You know, I think when you look at the dysfunction in Congress today and the members of Congress who are very extreme and aren't representative of the American people, we can get a pretty good idea of what we need to do to fix things. People do come to politics via issues. And if people get involved at the local level, you know, there's a big grassroots movement now around labeling genetically engineered food in more than 30 states. Mm -hmm. If these people go on and are able to actually pass legislation or initiatives, they've made very important contacts throughout the state. And that can be taken to the next level to actually start holding some of these state legislators accountable on these issues. And the reason Congress is so dysfunctional is that so many states have done a very poor job of redistricting. Every 10 years, we have a redistricting process in state legislatures, and the uh, districts are drawn to send people to Congress, uh, to the House of Representatives. And I know in my state of Virginia, my district is drawn like a snake to make sure that our very right-wing legislature can send the people to Congress that will uh, continue the policies that we have on, on the state level. And so I think that we have to be part of a longer and broader strategy to take back these state legislatures and to do the old-fashioned kind of organizing that really will reclaim our democracy. I'm very excited to see the work around the constitutional amendment to 
undo Citizens United to mm-hmm. begin the process of getting money out of politics. I think this is uh, very important. And I think the food movement can really play a role in educating and politicizing people. You know, we need to, as part of this work on our democracy, demand a, a functional market so that farmers can actually make a living and that uh, consumers can uh, actually have sustainable food to eat. We need to tackle future farm bills, and I see this as a long-term strategy, a long-term endeavor, because it's going to take uh, several farm bills to get the kinds of policies that make it possible to have a food system that really works. For instance, we need a competition title in the farm bill that straightens out some of the problems that livestock growers have. I mean, basically, we're driving independent livestock growers out of business, and the Obama administration promised to do something about this, and in the long run, chickened out. We have to figure out how to make common cause with farmers in rural areas, the places that the agriculture committees are really comprised of individuals from uh, many Midwestern and Southern states. And at Food and Water Watch, we've looked at the last six farm bills, and these tend to be the places that these committee members come from. We need to reclaim the politics in these states. We need to have some real world economic development to do this, rather than having the extractive industries moving in to rural uh, rural areas to frack and to ruin the the water and the land to get natural gas or oil in some places because farmers can't make a living. Uh, we need to increase the access to healthy food, and that means doing a lot about our economic system. And I don't think we can fix the food system or our democracy without tackling some of the issues around the growing stratification in this country. I mean, we need real research into helping organic farmers do what needs to be done in the future to uh, feed the population. We need to put an end to gene tinkering. You know, we have a lot of work to do, and I think people are very excited about tackling these issues and that we need to break them down into winnable campaigns. But to do this, we need people interested in food and other issues to get involved in the political system. Well, Winona, one of the reasons why I love Food and Water Watch is because I feel like I'm not alone in these battles and that I can join with other individuals all across the country and there are wonderful action steps that your organization provides so that we're not operating individually. We are coming together collectively you know, I also think I thought about your farm and that how you feed 500 families of vegetables. And I thought, well, if I'm growing corn or soybeans, I can get crop insurance through the farm bill if I have a climate disaster. But if you're growing broccoli and squash and strawberries and you've got a climate that doesn't support the crop that season, what do you do? Yeah, well, you know, if you're doing community-supported agriculture, really your shareholders uh, bear that risk. And, you know, obviously we need to make it easier for farmers to both make a living and to deal with disasters. 
And, you know, I think that uh, we, what we see with most fruit and vegetable growers that are doing this for distribution is that it's a very risky business. And what they say their number one problem is, is the lack of a real distribution system mm-hmm. where they can get a fair price. So I think the most important issues are around getting a functional market if you're not doing direct sales. Obviously, if you're a farmer that lives near a metropolitan area and can do direct sales, that's probably, you know, your best bet. Although I will say in many parts of the country, even this is becoming competitive because there are lots of farmers that want to do direct sales and not necessarily as many consumers who are in a position to get to where the food is, especially if you're a large urban area. In fact, for my farm in the Washington area, 45 miles away from D.C., but two hours away in terms of traffic. So we have a lot of distribution issues, and it's going to take federal policy changes to fix all of these things. And, you know, it's a lot deeper than undoing our subsidy system. Our our subsidy system is really a symptom of a dysfunctional food system. It's about 17 years old. And uh, uh, the problems are much deeper than this. We could get rid of it tomorrow, and we still wouldn't have a food system that really feeds people. We need to get to these structural issues, and we need to get to the place where we go back and look at some of the problems that have been created by the changes that took place in the 1980s around not having an adequate antitrust system, Mm -hmm. and then with the trade agreements in the 1990s that have basically offshored food production and made it much more difficult for uh, local and regional food to be economically uh, competitive in the U.S. All of these issues are beautifully described in your book. The antitrust legislation, the offshore fruit and vegetable growing, just how the consolidation of the food system has influenced consumer choice on a daily basis. And I just want to put another plug in for Foodopoly. It's terrific. We just have a couple of minutes. So I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with a charge or pull something out of the book that you want our listeners to go home with? Well, you know, I really wrote Foodopoly to urge people to take action. It's a call to action. And uh, get involved with local groups in your community. You can always become involved with Food and Water Watch. We are looking for people who want to take a stand and get involved in organizing, and there are opportunities at every level depending on the amount of time that you have. So I urge people to go to our website at foodandwaterwatch.org and uh, join our listserv and to get involved. And also, if you're interested in seeing if I'm coming to your community, you can go to uh, the Foodopoly website at foodopoly.org. But no matter how you become an activist, do take your politics a step farther beyond eating well and become politicized and get involved in these important issues because we are living at a time that really there's nothing more important than uh, taking back our democracy. Absolutely. Starting with the food system. And I, I want to leave our listeners, too, with a quote that activism really is patriotic. And sometimes it gets a negative connotation by those who like to keep the power structure concentrated. But I do believe that living in a democracy 
requires participation, and Foodopoly helps us do that. Food and Water Watch helps us do that, and I could not be more pleased with having you as my guest. So I want to thank Winona Hodder for being my guest on Food Sleuth Radio. Her book, Foodopoly, The Battle Over the Future of Food and Farming in America, is a must-read if you care about the food you eat. And of course, Winona Hodder is also the executive director of Food and Water Watch, which is one of the nation's leading healthy food advocate sites. So Please go to Food and Water Watch. Check out Foodopoly. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, Winona, for being a good citizen, for writing this book, and for starting Food and Water Watch. Thank you so much, and thank you for having this terrific show. It's really wonderful to get the message out.